0: You can travel just for fun, and you can also travel on purpose to meet the world and discover just how we all fit in on this planet.
1: But when you meet people face-to-face, you get to know them and their kids. I want my children to understand the world as the world, not just as an American sector.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're sojourning with Jim Wallace. We're seeing how nomadic life lingers in modern Turkey.
2: It just takes like half an hour to pitch the tent.
0: And we're learning from evolutionary biologist Christopher Wills just how much we all have in common.
3: One of the things that I've learned as I've traveled from one end of the planet to the other is how similar everybody
0: is. Venture out with us in the hour ahead as a preacher, a scientist, and a child of nomads share their own perspectives and help us to see the world in a whole new light as one big, interesting family. So come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Some people just don't fit in. They don't want to. They don't want to own property or get a job with a big company. Sometimes they'd rather stick to the same life their ancestors have lived for centuries, such as nomads, herding livestock in search of sweet grass in the mountains of Anatolia. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, a tour guide from Turkey explains how some of her family has lived off the land in goat-haired tents as far back as anyone can remember but recently her father's branch of the family tree opted out in favor of a modern lifestyle. We'll hear how nomadic traditions fit or don't fit into modern turkey, coming up in a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also find out what so-called primitive societies have taught scientist Christopher Wills about the forces of natural selection and how societal differences that keep us apart aren't always even skin-deep. Let's start with a different angle on our common humanity with one of America's leading Christian voices, the Reverend Jim Wallace. He's sometimes controversial with his evangelical base because he preaches about the need for social justice and the equal dignity of all people. Right out of college, Jim founded a community and a magazine both called Sojourners, and he joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what his travels to war zones and poor communities have taught him and his family about our place in the world. Jim Wallace, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, man. Sojourners. That's your magazine. That's your organization. Now, this is a travel show, and
1: Sojourners is traveling, right? People on a journey. It's, It's a metaphor for the church, the pilgrim people, people of God, people who don't know national boundaries, people who are in but not of the world an extended community around the world. Movement Network, Magazine, Online, Sojo Mail, it's a website, sojo.net. Really, it's a community all around the world, very global, very national.
0: I think travel is a beautiful thing when it comes to combating ethnocentricity, and I think ethnocentricity is kind of a dangerous notion these days. How does travel combat ethnocentricity in your faith?
1: Well... I think sometimes we are told that we are better than, different than other people, and somehow they are a threat to us because they're different than we are with different values. They care about different things. And that just isn't true. I've traveled all over the world, and I find that that what makes us human is much more powerful than what makes us different. When you meet meet parents who have the same hopes for their children in refugee camps— and their mothers are making you warm tortillas and coffee mm. every morning. You're playing with the kids, you know. You have a different view of that village than what's talked about on the evening news as a target for U.S. military strikes.
0: Okay, but you're a Christian leader and respected all over the place as a, a great Christian thinker. You've been on President Obama's spiritual advisory group I had an experience in eastern Turkey once and it, it made me feel really good but I hope I'm not just being kind of wishy-washy with my Christian faith. I was dancing in somebody's home and the man here was a Muslim. Mm-hmm. He took me over to the wall and he said, this is where I hang my Quran. It's the most holy place in my house, the Quran bag. Mm-hmm. And in my Quran bag, I also have a copy of the Bible and the Torah because we Muslims, Jews and Christians are all, quote, people of the book, children mm-hmm. of the same God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that unchristian to accept that from your theological point of view?
1: No, and you find Muslims around the world who hate the kind of violence being carried out by a very fundamentalist sect of their own faith. And the way you're often taught here that Muslims are, are all somehow part of this Islamic uh, terrorist movement is just not true. And you meet people of a very different Feeling, And they don't even hate you. I I have a friend who went to Iraq just before the war, young evangelical Christians, and they went to tell the people of Iraq that we don't hate them. On their way home, their car went off the road, had an accident, a serious accident. And a bunch of folks came out, you know, native Iraqi people and took them to the hospital. Now they're about to be bombed by Mm. the, the Americans. And yet these Iraqis took them to the hospital. And one of the young kids had a broken arm, and they had no money. And they took care of them, and they fixed his arm, and they said, you know, you don't have any money, but we've taken a collection here among the nurses and doctors and staff, and we're only about $200 short. Do you think you could come up with that to pay for this medical care? Now, these are people who are about to be bombed by yeah. – by, <laughs> and here are these American kids experiencing a hospitality and generosity. They didn't like Saddam Hussein either. Right. But. I, I told the president, President Bush, I said, you you know, I want to see Saddam Hussein removed too, but not by bombing the children of Baghdad. So I went to Baghdad, and I met the faith leaders there and the children, and this was not the answer. on uh, so how do you solve problems in a different way, resolve conflicts, by knowing the people and relating to people that you're estranged from.
0: But we have to be able to put the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran in the same bag in order to do that, because nobody's going to go away. There's a billion there are,
1: Muslims in the world. Yeah,
0: there's a right? billion Muslims, a billion Christians, and would you say it's fair to say that, of course there's extremists in every religion that wouldn't accept this, but the mainstream leaders of Christendom, Judaism, and Islam would be Comfortable in the interest of peace to have that man have those three books in the same bag and say we're all children of the
1: Well let me tell you a quick story. You remember when there was a big controversy about the mosque in New York City, and then a pastor in Florida said he wanted to burn the Quran. Remember right. that, oh, Terry yeah. Jones. Mm-hmm. Every night I was on one of these cable stations saying, the media is doing a conflict narrative. There are other things going on. Finally CNN told a story of the Heart Song Church in Memphis, Tennessee who heard there was an Islamic cultural center coming to their neighborhood. So Steve Stone put a sign out, Heartsong Church welcomes Memphis Islamic Cultural Center. The muscles were blown away. They <laughs> said, we hope to be ignored, and you welcomed us. And they said, well, we try to love Jesus here, and so he says, love your neighbors, and, and we heard you're a new neighbor, so welcome to the neighborhood. Kids begin to play with kids. The pork barbecue began to include halal meat, chicken, and beef. And then they said, this night <laughs> on 9-11, they said, we want to celebrate Ramadan, but our building isn't finished. Can we do it in the church? And they <laughs> celebrate Ramadan. So then I called Steve, and he turns out to be a sojourner, which I was very proud. He was a subscriber. And he says, can I tell you what a conversation I had three days ago. I got a call from Pakistan, Kashmir, a room full of Muslim men. They said, is this Steve Stone, the pastor? Yes. We saw your segment on CNN. You and the imam. We were stunned, and we were silent for a long time. Then one of us said, I think God is speaking to us through this man. Another one said, how can we kill these people? Another one of us went out, and he found the little Christian church near us, and with his Muslim hands, he cleaned it inside and out to be a good neighbor. Now we're back together. To 1.30 a.m. We're calling you to say that we don't hate you, pastor, in your congregation. We love you, and we're going to take care of that little church for the rest of our lives to try and be good neighbors, too, and do what you're trying to do in your country. So what works better in Pakistan, drones or this kind of connection to other people?
0: When you think about the power of religion all over the world, it's Mm -hmm. easy for people to think religion is a big part of the problem. And I think of the theocracy in Iran, for instance. Are there any other theocracies on this planet?
1: Not in that same way, but I remember uh, when I was in the South African struggle for a long time with my good friend Desmond Tutu, the uh, Dutch Reformed Church was virtually a combination of church and state with apartheid, a religious justification of apartheid. So hmm. religion has been used. I'm a Christian, but I want to be the first to say it has been used for terrible purposes, mm-hmm. uh, hierarchical, patriarchal, violent, destructive. But it's also been the catalyst and the energy and the the motivator of all of the great movements for justice and peace. Where would we be without the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Desmond Tutu it has been both a source of great pain but also a source of great healing and i think faith can bring people together just like travel you meet people who who share the same faith as you or they share another faith but their faith leads them to the same kinds of convictions and commitments and so i think religion uh, rather than being a divisive force, can be a catalytic force to bring us together to find solutions to our inevitable human conflicts. We're going to be in conflict. We're human beings. But when you meet people face-to-face, you get to know them and their kids. The other day, somebody said something me about being a Muslim, and Jack, my 7-year-old, said, Well, I have a friend who's a Muslim, and he's a great guy. <laughs>
0: you know? Jim Wallace, you are a liberal Christian. You could call it a progressive evangelical. Is that true? <laughs> See, I, I, think... I know you don't like labels, but I mean, there's this right. whole evangelical movement that is...
1: The Christian right. The, the Christian right. right. Mm-hmm.
0: And they're interested in the sanctity of life, and then other Christians are more interested in social and economic
1: justice. The sanctity of life includes being concerned about the 30,000 children who die every single day. I care. I care about a million abortions every year in America too. I want to prevent and reduce the number of abortions. I want to support low income women. I want to prevent unwanted pregnancies. But I also care about nuclear weapons aimed at millions of people and kids who are dying every day of totally preventable disease. You know, the scripture says choose life
0: but as a Christian leader, right. do you see any hope of getting the Christian right oh, yeah. to see it that way? Is well, there a movement that way? Because I heard yeah. that there was more empathy with these calls for economic justice lately among oh, the Christian sure. right.
1: There's a new generation coming up that doesn't believe that faith fits the political categories of left and right. When you try and squeeze religion into mm-hmm. political categories, it gets misshapen. Right. So I don't want to be the Christian left As opposed to the Christian right, that would be just a mere reflection of them. A new generation wants to apply their faith and the gospel to all the issues of life. So poverty is on their agenda. Creation care, they would say, the environment is on their agenda. Creation care is a politically acceptable term for environmentalism. Uh, Absolutely, stewardship. 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 Trafficking is a huge issue. You travel all over the world. Trafficking is a huge moral issue. There are more people, women and children now, in economic and sexual slavery around the world than there were when Wilberforce freed the slaves in Britain 200 years ago.
0: I get the sense that you work really hard, and I get the sense that part of the reason you work really hard is because you've uh, been able to travel as much as you have.
1: Well, I want my children to understand the world as the world, not just as an American uh, sort of sector – the rest of the world. My my wife is British, so they have dual passports, they've been around the world, and they really do see the world differently than they would if they just only saw it from an American point of view. They see the world through the eyes of those who live in very different circumstances than they live in. And it's it's freeing, it's liberating, it's exciting, it's fun. I mean, I, I've had fun. I've danced with people all over the world and ate their food and at parties and celebrations, and it's just a lot more fun.
0: Jim Wallace is the founder and editor of Sojourners magazine. You can learn more about his work at sojo.net, S-O-J-O.net. Jim Wallace, thanks so much for being
1: here. It's lots of fun to be here. Thank you. Best wishes with your work and happy sojourning. Thank you.
0: Next, we view the world through the evolutionary eyes of the Darwinian tourist for another angle on our place in the world. It's travel with Rick Steves. Travel to the remotest parts of the earth, and you'll see people who live very different lives from our own. But as poets and songwriters have asked for centuries, are we really all that different, socially, spiritually, even physically? We've invited Christopher Wills to join us again on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about what he's learned from studying remote Aboriginal communities in places like Africa, Australia, and Indonesia, and how his biological studies into natural selection help him to make some sense of our world. Christopher teaches biological science at the University of California in San Diego. His latest book is called The Darwinian Tourist. Christopher, thanks for joining us again.
3: uh, Thank you, Rick.
0: In your book, you're really encouraging travelers to get a basis for being able to look at the world through evolutionary eyes to enrich their travel experience. What, What do you mean by that exactly?
3: If you travel to remote parts of the world, you'll find, of course, they're very different. And what I try to do in the book is help to explain why they're so different, how they've gotten the way they are. And sometimes I have to probe back over hundreds of millions of years of evolution to do it. But in the process, by putting this in context, by putting your experience in context, you can really understand the four-dimensional nature of the world, Hmm. the three dimensions that we see and the immense dimension of time.
0: Now, is it more biology or is it more anthropology?
3: Oh, both. Biology blends with anthropology, especially these days. Uh, cultural and physical anthropology both have biological dimensions.
0: So we've got the cultural stuff and the physical, biological stuff mixing together to kind of tell the, the full story of mankind on this planet. In your book, you talk about the myth of human uniqueness. What is that?
3: Well, this is, uh, I think, something that, that everybody presumes, to begin with at least, that people are somehow special. We're obviously smarter than other animals. We have languages. We uh, have wonderful hands that allow us to do all kinds of wonderful manipulations. Surely we have to be unique. Darwin pointed out uh, very strongly that that's not the case at all, that humans have been shaped by natural selection just like other organisms have, and we now know with certainty that the genetic processes that allow natural selection to take place are exactly the same for humans as they are for everything else.
0: So can you say that we're not unique in having cultural rituals?
3: No. In fact, uh, it's becoming clearer that cultural specializations are apparent, especially in uh, chimpanzee groups. East African and West African chimpanzees have quite clear cultural differences. How they teach the young to get food, the Mm -hmm. kinds of food they look for, the ways they obtain it, uh, the tools that they use. These are all things that are cultural, chiefly, although the chimpanzees are smart enough to be able to to incorporate these uh, technologies into their culture.
0: Now, in my travels, I'm struck by how some people are just intimate with nature and other peoples are really isolated from nature.
3: I think that's inevitable. If you live in a city, you're a long way from nature, usually, unless you happen to be lucky enough to live near a park. And as a consequence, when you visit nature, when you see what the world is really like, you don't really have the long experience that somebody who's lived there for a long time would have. But I really think that somebody who lives in a city has the opportunity to learn much about nature. If you live in a big city, you can visit museums, you can go to universities and listen to the many free lectures there. You can really learn a lot about the real world, even if you're surrounded by buildings and concrete.
0: Have you thought much of how we have evolved in our life circumstance faster than our bodies physically can evolve to match that? We have climate control, we sit in front of computers, we don't need to hunt and gather, and that's just like eight generations from when we might have been in a whole different sort of physical reality. Have we not been able to evolve physically as fast as we've evolved in our lifestyle? And is that a problem?
3: I think that during the early stages of human evolution, our bodies could pretty much keep up with our culture. If you look over the two million years that we know we've used stone tools, for much of that time, the stone tools didn't change very much. So probably our cultures, which probably were getting more complex with time, were more or less step. Uh, by step with the, the physical changes that were taking place in our species. Now, though, things have really shot away. Uh, uh, culture is is uh, changing at an exponential rate, and our true evolutionary changes, the changes to our genes, are certainly uh, much, much slower by comparison. On the other hand, we can't really overshoot, and sometimes, you know, we do. The, the spread of Preventable diseases like type 2 diabetes in many populations are things that have come about because we have yet to catch up with this changing physical culture
0: and to understand it. So there are some consequences of us evolving culturally faster than we can evolve physically.
3: Indeed, because you may be eating all the wrong things, for example, because nobody has told you not to and nobody's explained to you why it's not a good idea. And that's exactly why I think we have to sometimes pause a bit and
0: ask, you know, how can we undo some of the damage that we've done? Now, that is a little bit related to my concern about the plight of nomads on this planet. I mean, nomadic communities uh, are designed to have no fences and no private property. And right now, the whole world is becoming fences and private property. What's your take on the on the reality of, of nomads across the globe?
3: Well, from my own limited experience with nomads, I've been to to a number of uh, areas where nomadic tribes still carry on at least some simulacrum of their ancient life. They have been caught up in history. The uh, San people of southern Africa, for example, the San of the Kalahari Desert, were people who were very uh, widespread throughout much of southern Africa up till about a thousand years ago. And they really were they had a a very elaborate culture probably for at least twenty thousand years they've been drawing all sorts of neat pictures on walls and on rocks and in caves their dances are wonderful their stories are wonderful their languages are highly complex all that developed in isolation then a thousand years ago the bantu peoples came down from the north bringing with them agriculture and iron tools then, of course, uh, three or four hundred years ago, the Boers, the uh, Dutch settlers arrived uh, in Cape Town and began to spread north. They've pushed these people into the Kalahari, where they are now. We look at the uh, San now, and they can survive in the Kalahari. But to be able to do that, they had to change their culture. They had to learn new ways to survive. And this has caused huge Pressures on their population they're fighting back they 're trying to gain political power.
0: They would be at odds with the government, which represents the settled down dimension of that society
3: exactly so in Botswana. the Botswana people who make up the majority of the people in this country, very much at loggerheads with the San there is a great deal of collision here, but i I think that the San are getting savvy enough and beginning to gain enough political power that I feel some hope that they will be able to to retain. Not their original lifestyle, which involved long migrations, yeah. but at least a, a sense of freedom and a sense of their own self-worth.
0: I think that's something we can have have empathy with when we think of the struggles of Gypsies and Kurds with their communities. When you know the Turkish government will give these Kurdish shepherds houses and schools, and the people say, "No, we want to live in our tents and roam with our with our flock." It's a very tough reality for these nomadic groups. I think.
3: It's a very tough reality, and as you look from the outside, you say, "Well, it's terrific that uh, these people can go on uh, roaming over huge spans of uh, space and time." But what's going to happen to their children if they get sick? What's going to happen to their children if they That's don't right. gain the skills that they need to survive in the twenty-first century? This is a very tough set of calls, and and I don't know how it's going to break.
0: I'm talking with Christopher Wills. He's the author of The Darwinian Tourist, Viewing the World Through Evolutionary Eyes. It's fascinating to think that there are Aboriginal communities that are remarkably isolated from the modern world. You talk about the Tiwi Islands. I mean, it sounds like they make Papua New Guinea, which seems remote to me, almost mainstream. Tell us about the Aboriginals on the Tiwi Islands. Well, the Aboriginals of the Tiwis are slightly
3: different, not that different, from the Aboriginals of mainland Australia. They probably migrated to the Tiweth, which are little islands just to the north of mainland Australia, near the city of Darwin. They migrated to these islands perhaps just a few thousand years ago. So they've not differentiated very much from the mainland aboriginals. But they have, in that short span of time, developed a unique culture. Their art is clearly different from that of the uh, aboriginal peoples of the mainland. And I found it absolutely charming. I found the people to be wonderful. They also have a a very strong sense of identity and a determination to succeed in the world that I found uh, really uh, very striking indeed.
0: You mentioned we can actually uh, learn from a tribe's distinct fingerprints. How does that help a Darwinian biologist?
3: Well, the fingerprint story, I just mentioned that uh, in passing, but in essence, if you look at the fraction of different types of fingerprints that you find on people's fingers, you can sometimes see that Uh, This fraction changes over time, and this, of course, has some genetic basis. So the Tiwi Islanders have a slightly different average set of fingerprints than the uh, aboriginals on the mainland. They are relatively close. A much more accurate way of measuring the distance between the two groups is to look at genetic differences between them. The genetic differences are small but significant. If, however, you look further away, if you look at the peoples of New Guinea to the north, you'll see much larger genetic differences that have accumulated in many cases over tens of thousands of years.
0: We can learn so much by traveling around the world and it it sort of reminds us that we are not the norm. I'll never forget um, getting onto an airplane somewhere in South Asia where they had a stick figure on the door to the toilet uh, explaining that you don't stand on the rim of the toilet and squat over it. Isn't it fascinating that... For the average human being on this planet, they would hardly know what to do with a sit-down toilet.
3: Uh, yes, that's something that certainly I've encountered as well. And obviously the sit-down toilet a only come lately in the various uh, mechanisms that I've certainly encountered uh, to do one of the mechanical business. The gaps, I think, though, between different human groups are far smaller than these casual interactions might suggest. One of the things that I've learned as I've traveled from one end of the planet to the other is how
0: similar everybody is. When you think about that, I'm also thinking about the ethnic variety on the planet and the fact that every year we lose a couple of languages. I mean, languages actually go extinct.
3: Take the languages of New Guinea, for example. There are over 800 languages. I don't think anyone's clear exactly how many there are. And they have arisen primarily because different groups, even fairly uh, near each other, have not mixed both for physical reasons, because they may be separated by a mountain ridge, or for cultural reasons, because they only mix through warfare or they may uh, they may have nothing to do with each other. This really encouraged for a long span of time the development of different languages or the evolution of different languages. But now, of course, people are beginning to uh, to come together. One of the I think uh, most uh, wonderful things that was done during the time when the Australians ran Papua New Guinea was to introduce the idea of a sing-sing, and the Australian Cultural Commissioners got people from many different tribes to come together, have a tremendous sing-sing where everybody got dressed up, everybody showed off their dances, their costumes, their different cultural uh, patterns and so on. and. This has opened the eyes of people in many parts of New Guinea to their diversity, to the fact that the people on the other side of the ridge aren't that different from them, and that I find to be very exciting. Everywhere I've gone in New Guinea, people are excited to talk to me about people they have met from a different tribe or a different area, so apparently different from them, and yet it it turns out so similar.
0: So you've been to one of these sing-sings in Papua New Guinea?
3: Yes, I went to uh, Sing Sing a few years ago in Mount Hagen. Uh, there are two big ones, one at Goroka, one at Mount Hagen. They're both really quite wonderful experiences.
0: I was at Garoka there, and, uh, you know, there's a few tourists and a few photographers, but this was clearly a festival by and for this incredible array of uh, tribal groups. And, and they came together, and it was sort of a, a Papua New Guinean cultural woodstock. I mean, it was It was one of the most powerful experiences I've seen, and and now that you mention it, it really is a chance for them to celebrate their uniqueness, isn't it?
3: It is indeed. Celebrate their uniqueness, glory in it, and, uh, if you like, uh, increase their feeling of self-worth, their feeling that what they do matters, their feeling that the culture that they have developed over thousands of years is meaningful and exciting and something that other people are really interested in. That, I think, is the great strength of a sing-sing.
4: Come from different
0: places, anniversary, let us celebrate. I'm Rick Steves. This is travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Christopher Wills. He's the author of The Darwinian Tourist viewing the world through evolutionary eyes. Christopher, your book is just clearly a labor of love. It sounds like you want tourists to look at the world with a special lens. If you had a tourist right there in the middle of that sing-sing with all the tribes of Papua New Guinea coming together, how would your book help them better understand that moment? Well, I think the
3: book would introduce the visitor to the idea that what we're looking at at a sing-sing is... Literally thousands of years of diversification, cultural evolution, not physical or genetic evolution, but cultural evolution that has produced a huge variety of different cultural responses to the incredibly diverse ecosystems of New Guinea. The feathers that people decorate themselves with, the animal pelts that they decorate themselves with, the ways they decorate themselves, the legends that they have constructed All these things together are an inextricably interwoven interaction between these people and their physical environment, something that has happened over, we know, a 50,000-year span. As you look at these people with their tremendous variety of costumes, their variety of song, of language, you must remember, as a Darwinian tourist, That it has taken 50,000 years for these people, many of them living in virtual isolation, to diverge to the point where they are so different in their cultures. And at the same time, 50,000 years is not enough time to make them genetically different, to make them so different that they're not part of the great human family.
0: Christopher Wills, author of The Darwinian Tourist, thanks for helping us view the world through evolutionary eyes.
3: Well thank you very much Rick I've really enjoyed it
5: Back to culture. take me on to culture.
4: Sometimes what you imagine your travels will be like, and how they turn out, can prove to be two different realities. Here's some examples in the form of haiku written by our listeners. Karen Bray of Columbus, Indiana, led a group of two dozen American high school students on a trip to Europe, which inspired this haiku she sends us. High school travel group, four countries in six short days, where's Taco Bell? Anetta Miller, from Marion, Illinois, sends us one that might resonate with a few parents. Travel with adult child. No more burgers to eat. When can I stop footing the bill? Imazelle McVeigh, from Chula Vista, California, planned on seeing a lot of sights in London, but writes this haiku to confess what really happened. Buckingham Palace. Big Ben. The Tate. Shakespeare's Globe. We mainly do pubs.
0: Links for sending us your own original travel haiku are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Up next, the granddaughter of Turkish nomads gives us a peek into life from a tent and how her relatives coexist with the modern world.
4: It's Travel with Rick Steves. Bhutan Himalayas Le in na rick steeps da chika joe in hello my name is Loti Rinchen from Bhutan north of India in the Himalayas I travel with rick steeps <laughs> that's
3: good
0: when you travel you realize that in this modern world the plight of nomadic peoples gets tougher and tougher Cards are stacked against nomads that don't want to live with a settled-down kind of mentality. They don't want to raise their children in the, in the government school or play by the, the rules uh, established up in the capital. There's just about 30 or 40 million nomads left in this increasingly industrialized world. There's three kinds. There's hunter-gatherers, there's herders, and there's traveling artisans and craftspeople. Uh, today we're going to talk about nomads and the plight of nomads in Turkey. And we're joined by somebody whose family comes out of a nomadic heritage, Aishugul Unlu. Thanks for joining us, Aishugul.
2: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure for me to be here.
0: Tell us, uh, how is your family nomadic?
2: Well, I come from a family known as part of the Niyotaman nomadic people. In Turkish, we call nomadic people as yörük. And that's the word for to walk. So there were people... People who walked. Just walked, yeah in order to find pastures in the highlands for their flocks of sheep and goats.
0: So how many generations ago were your relatives?
2: Like sh- three generations, I can say. I still remember having said in my uncle's tents, black goat hair tents. So black
0: goat hair tents, just like yes. uh, in the Bible. Exactly. <laughs> wow. What was that like?
2: What does it look like? It's, in it you have first the skeleton, let's say a kind of scaffolding, which is just consisting of reeds, and a big pole in the very center. And then you just around it stretch the goat hair. The, the, goat, <laughs> hair fabric, like the, the goat hair fabric, like the canvas. fabric, yeah. It's a kind of woven so stuff, like a textile thing. And it's a kind of like partial waterproof, I can say. And we're well ventilated in the summertime. Whenever there's a serious rain, I remember my uncles used to have... A big nylon bag around it, and it was quite all right. So a big, there, almost like India's a plastic soul. tarp yeah, or something. Yeah, over exactly, there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the simple furnishing, of course. Well, it's nomadic. Very, it's, it's, it's nomadic.
0: It's It's like course, to be portable, and, to portable. Exactly. It's,
2: it just takes like half an hour to pitch the tent.
0: Going with your herds. Yes. Where you need to get new, new grass for the sheep to eat.
2: That's true. Well, in the past, I don't remember having seen any camels with my own clan, but they used to use camels for transportation.
0: I've had some beautiful opportunities when I travel Mm -hmm. around Turkey just to stop in the middle of nowhere and and leave the car and walk over to a tent and talk to nomadic people. Yes. Is that still possible?
2: It's very likely. Mm -hmm. In the Taurus mountain ranges and in the southeast part of Turkey.
0: The southeast part of Turkey and the Taurus mountain range. Yes. And what would happen? You walk up. Who do you meet? What do you see today when you find nomadic people?
2: Well, you will be seeing uh, nuclear families, I would have to say, like the footer, the kids and the mother mother of course doing the kicking and the milking and in production of the dairy things like the cheese so that's the means and the father have. would be the herder and the, the shepherd would be the herder exactly and his main duty is going to be majorly at the moment it's like not catering to the butchers but catering to the people in the urban areas, especially right before the Sacrifice Festival.
0: Oh, so it's relating to Muslim sacrifices when they need a sheep or a a lamb or something.
2: In my part of the nomadic family where they live, it's going on like that.
0: I'll never forget dropping by a nomad's tent and the little boy was playing an eagle bone flute. Mm -hmm. Do they still play the eagle bone flute? Yes, they do. (laughs) Tell me about that.
2: Well, hunting is like a hobby for the nomadic people. It's not really... You know, they majorly make their living from herding the flocks, but hunting is a big part of the culture. So it's either eagle or rabbit, or deer hunt. They hunt eagles. Yeah.
0: And when they've shot an eagle, they'll use all the parts of the body and they make a flute out of the bone. Exactly, and it's
2: a beautiful instrument.
0: It's a gorgeous music they make. (laughs) Yes. And the little boy was playing an eagle bone flute, and then I could hear, I couldn't see the father, but the father Mm. was playing an eagle bone flute just over the ridge of the hill.
2: (laughs) That's a kind of like communication mean also. And I would imagine that
0: goes back to biblical times.
2: Yeah, it must have been. I mean, I remember also different sorts of music. Uh, I remember my grandma, for instance, there's a kind of like guttural music she made just with her throat. With her throat. We call it throat throat, playing. Throat throat singing. Throat singing. Yeah. Well, literally when you translate into Turkish, that's how we call it. But yeah, yeah, the throat singing. And it's related, of course, to shamanistic music approach.
0: I'm speaking with Ayşegül Unlu. She's from Turkey. Her family is, has been a nomadic family. Of course, there's fewer nomadic families now in Turkey. What is the government's approach in Turkey to nomads?
2: There is usually the comparison that they make to gypsies. Well, that's totally a different concept. Uh, I can say there are gypsies in Turkey as well as nomadic people. Well, we can't really speak of any kind of government pressure, on the nomads, because they really do not have a big influence on the other people.
0: Because my understanding was in southeastern Turkey, the government was providing houses and schooling for nomadic uh, yes. tribes, hoping they would settle down. Yes. But the people don't want their children to be schooled by the government.
2: Well, for the South part of Turkey, it might be a little bit different. So that
0: would be a Kurdish
4: issue, That really. will be a
2: Kurdish issue. Well... There, because of the harsh territory, it's a little bit harder for them, of course, to adopt the sedentary lifestyle also, whereas in the western part, there are more villages nowadays, and uh, it's a little bit tough, of course, for a nuclear family to go in between the two, because I remember, for instance, the son of my youngest uncle, my cousin, he was carrying this lifestyle till quite recently, and he had two sons, so they were spending most of the summertime with the parents in the highland pastures and looking after the Goats and sheep.
0: And there still is a viable economy for
2: goats and sheep. This is what they would raise as goats and sheep. Goats and sheep, majorly, yeah, in the western part of the Taurus Mountains. And uh, they used to go to school in the wintertime, but that was a big concern because they can't just leave their herds of, you know, goats and sheep. So they were leaving the kids to the other relatives for their education. But it's a tough thing that separation you know, in a very young age for the sense. I believe
0: that's why in the United States we have a big summer break, three months off for the children, because traditionally that was when they would help on the farms. Yes, that's true. So in Turkey, the nomadic families, they could be with the herding parents during that season, go to school in the winter.
2: Yes, that's how it is.
0: So if a nomad wants to buy a new goat hair tent, where does he go?
2: They don't buy it. They produce the... Traditionally, themselves. So this is quite a a self-sufficient community. Nothing is wasted, yes. Nothing is wasted, that's the idea. So they used to make them themselves. Nowadays, of course, people are purchasing uh, from the older families, I can say, some of this fabric, but there is less production because there is more modern means also.
0: And now the modern communication techniques and the modern economy, it reaches even into these nomadic Clans. It
2: does. It does definitely. People used to go around the how to say like ponds right. where the water or was spring, collected, where they knew a spring. Or was. by a spring. Nowadays if they find a comfortable area for them, they can regularly get the water from the neighboring village.
0: There are thousands of nomads out there doing their thing as they have for centuries. Uh how do they organize politically or do they?
2: Well, there is not a political organization whatsoever. So they're pretty like, much disparate. Yeah, well, people want to carry on the traditions and customs, and when it comes to that, they are really proud of their, you know, background, and they remember about these issues and at the wedding parties and so on. But there is not a real political organization. But of course, they would be giving support more from the same background people politically as well. Because they would be the ones who would be understanding their problems and difficulties in life.
0: Who represents them in the government?
2: Well, the thing is, one of the things, of course, disappearing with the modernity and globalization is there is less and less, I mean, uh, families. Yeah, they They don't don't fit. They don't fit. fit. And I would think it's difficult
0: to keep the children on the tent. That's true. The children want to go into the city. That's true,
2: yeah. In that case, of course, they would be having more education, and the more educated people you have, the less people would like to carry on with that. And it's a real issue, and all these things are disappearing. Are you sad
0: when you think of your heritage that the lifestyle of the nomads of Turkey is really not going to last very much longer?
2: I am sad about it. On the other hand, I believe that the ones who have the chance for further education... They should be given the chance for their further education and their choices in life. But for those who do not have any future prospects in education, there is definitely a need for them in life. I mean, for the herding of the animals. If you need, a, if you need and a lamb to sacrifice, to where are you on, going to go? Exactly, to carry on this art of living, I have to say, because, you know, even when you look at in the artistic approach, there had been a great contribution of these people. What's that? Carpet making, kilims, and I remember, for instance, my it's grandma. Literally, part
0: of the fabric of your culture. Yes, this like nomadic even community. braiding
2: some of the woolen yarns that my grandma made and dyeing them to different colors. She was making some very easy products. Like uh, whenever you carry the babies around, you right. can just tie them around, wrap them right. around yeah. in these fabrics. That sort of thing.
0: So you're two generations basically away from the tent and the nomadic yes. lifestyle. How is it that you are, if I look at you on the street, I would not think nomad. (laughs) Uh, What what happened to you to get you out of that community?
2: It was because of my father. Your father. Yes. My father is among his 14 siblings from two wives of my grandpa. (laughs) He was really very bright at primary school, and he was chosen by his teacher, as one of the bright ones who so he had excelled. to go on yeah he excelled so uh, he studied at the village institute to become a teacher and after having become a teacher he wanted his kids to have a better education of course so wow. that's my story so and education. my sisters yes yes
0: and today you're traveling around the united states today you went shopping what were you shopping for
2: Ah, uh, snowboarding outfit and gear yeah snowboarding
0: <laughs> outfit so the nomad with the Island snowboard I the mountains well
2: that <laughs> didn't change <laughs> <laughs> snowboarding
0: in Turkey. don't think of Turkey for skiing and well, snowboarding. Where do you snowboard? Uh,
2: in a place called Kartalkya, like four hours away from Istanbul. But there are plenty of resort towns now right. for skiing and snowboarding. It's just a developing new, well, so you can, you, can, you can
0: drop in on your great uncle one day and play the bone flute, and the next day you can get together with your friends and your yes. cell phones and go <laughs> snowboarding.
2: No, I'm kind of like the weird one in the family. I traveled uh, for an average tour quite widely, and they have some difficulties in understanding what I do sometimes. Like, why would on earth would you go to India, for instance? They have really difficulty in understanding some of the things, of course. Because
0: the outlook of a nomad is probably, well, you can walk there, and yeah, if you can't walk there, well, why do you need to go there?
2: <laughs> That's true. Or, you know, what would you be searching there?
0: girl, <laughs> if you're a tourist coming to Turkey and you want to get a dose of uh, the surviving nomadic lifestyle, what would be the best approach?
2: Well, the easiest accessible way of seeing it would be a visit to Turkish Islamic Arts Museum in Istanbul, very so close to the Hippodrome.
0: This is the Islamic Arts Museum with a big ethnographic upstairs, or is it downstairs? It's downstairs, downstairs. downstairs. The you can't miss it. It's right on the Hippodrome there, near the yes. Blue Mosque. Okay, yes. so that's the big museum. And there, you get this beautiful look at the uh, various ethnic groups in Turkey. Yeah. If you want to actually see nomads, well, what could you do?
2: Indeed, if you are traveling around the Taurus Mountains in the southern part of Turkey, and you are really very really likely to maybe see a caravan of a nomadic group of people, like, well, late, I would say, spring, because that's the time, usually, when they are looking for highland pastures, and they will be moving on. I mean, So you
0: might see a man alone with his flock?
2: Well... Not really where that close by to the main road, but uh, if you have really open eyes and look for it, you might see it or you might see some tents pitched already by the side of the road. Can you park your
0: car and walk over and say hello?
2: Yes, you can. Just watch out the dogs sometimes. The dogs. (laughs) Yeah, the shepherd dogs are quite fierce, I have to say. So apart from that, it's very accessible. I mean, people would be very hospitable and they would welcome you, even though they wouldn't be understanding, maybe the, in a single you'd word. You'd have a language barrier, <laughs> yeah, but you could enjoy would, the tea. I'm yes, sure the chai would, would come out. The chai or iran or I don't know, whatever they have. Whatever they have. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Well, I, I
0: really find that especially in the Muslim faith, a traveler is a gift from God or a visitor from another country yes. is treated as a gift from God.
2: Yes, exactly. We call Tandra Misafiri, the guest of the God, we call. So You'll be welcomed person, appropriately exactly
0: what is the word again in Turkish for nomads? yuruk yuruk and what yeah. does that mean?
2: well it comes from the verb uh, yurumek which is to walk to walk basically the yeah. nomads yeah
0: I go Unlu thank you very much and, and best wishes with uh, with your family with your heritage and with your snowboarding
2: thank you very much <laughs> thanks a lot mm.
0: While it's not exactly a nomad, Willie Weir knows how to travel with a tent. He's logged thousands of miles by bike and reports back to us from time to time on his adventures. Willie joins us now to tell us about the time he and his wife peddled around Portugal, and when a special day arrived, even a steady rain on the roof of their tent couldn't dampen the moment. Like an endless
6: vat of popcorn being popped, the rain beats against our tent. Occasional heavy gusts of wind add to the symphony. Out there, down the hill from our wild campsite, nestled between the tall eucalyptus and pine trees, is the Douro, the famed river that historically was used to transport the white, ruby, and tawny ports from the higher elevation vineyards, where the grapes are small and concentrated with sugar, to Porto. The trucks do the job today, but romantics can still envision boats laden with the barrels of port. The road winds above the Douro through small towns and vineyards, a perfect route for a memorable birthday for my wife and travel companion, Kat. We could stop for lunch at a restaurant with a view and maybe splurge on a room at a quinta, a countryside lodge. But the rains came early in the morning and never stopped. Oh, maybe occasionally, just long enough to get our hopes up and thoughts of packing up the tent. But then another gust of wind would bring a cascade of water from the tree canopy and the rain would start again. So Kat will spend her birthday in a little six-by-four tent with a view of soggy, fallen eucalyptus leaves imprinted on the rainfly. There will be moments of excitement, a victorious gin game, uh, some bread with cheese al dente. That's actually dented cheese. Our wedge of cheese got smashed up against a tuna can in our food bag. And there will be the occasional sojourns out of the tent to heed the call of nature. And there will be tea and an almond shortbread treat that she will hold up and sing happy birthday to me while giggling uncontrollably. The sun will set, and the wind and the rain will continue late into the night. It wasn't in the plans. It wasn't idyllic. The duro will still be there tomorrow. But it was, for lack of a better word, a memorable birthday.
4: Have a good birthday. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to you. Ah. And goodbye. Have a good (laughs) birthday. Happy birthday to you.
0: Willie's website is willyweird.com, that's W-E-I-R, and more of his travel reports are included in his book, Travels with Willie. You'll also find web links to our other guests in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
5: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at KPBS San Diego and to Keith Sticklemeyer for helping with today's show. We also get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Robin Cronin, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We've arranged most of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe Package. It's on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. If you'd like to join us as a caller on Travel with Rick Steves or just listen behind the scenes as we produce the program, be sure to go to the radio section of ricksteves.com. Include your email address at the Radio Waves link and we'll notify you of the dates and topics for our next recording sessions. That's how you can ask Rick and his guests your question and share your travel experiences with us. We'll see you again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
4: Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information
0: to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.